0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Pension Risk Transfer podcast. This is episode one, where we're going to be discussing the best practice guide. I'm Roshni Sakaria, Actual Manager in the pricing team at Legal & General, and I'm joined here today with Amit McLean and Gavin Smith.
1: Thanks, Roshni. Yeah, I'm Gavin Smith, uh, Head of Pricing and Execution at Legal & General. Um, So I've been uh, working at Legal in General now for over eight years and I've been in my current role for coming up to to three years. I guess a key part of my role is around making sure we can produce um, enough quotes to support our clients and to make sure that those quotes are are accurate and competitive. Um, And another key part of my role is also around thinking about making sure that after we priced a transaction, how is that transaction onboarded onto onto legal and general systems from a pricing perspective. So doing those kind of post transaction data cleanups um, and looking after the reinsurance
2: arrangements as well. All right,
0: thanks Gavin. Amrit? My name is Amrit
2: McLean. I am a partner in the global law firm DLA Piper. Um, I just specialise in de-risking, so that's all we do. We just work on PRT de-risking transactions every day. Uh, we act for every insurer in the UK market, so we see a lot of transactions. Um, and I did work with Gavin at LNG for about four and a half years, and Aviva as well, uh, before moving back to private practice.
0: Great. Thanks, thanks both. And. Uh... Welcome to the first episode. Um, I guess before we get to the best practice guide, um, I'm sure our listeners are keen to know why are we seeing higher demand in buy-in and buy-in, buy-out transactions?
1: Yeah, I I could pick that up, first of all. So, I mean, generally speaking, affordability has been improving for defined benefit. Pension schemes for a, for a number of years now. If you actually kind of go back and, and look at things like the PPF index, you'll see that kind of affordability has been steadily improving since, since probably around 2016-2017, with generally favorable investment markets and uh, companies putting in substantial contributions into their into their pension schemes. But what we've really seen since perhaps around about the end of 2020 is a steady increase in gilt yields and that's had a big impact of affordability of pension schemes over the last couple of years and then that was really turbocharged with the kind of the the, the gilts crisis at the um at the end of 2022 where we had a real spike in in, in gilt yields um kind of building on that on that trend we we're already seeing that all of a sudden meant that schemes who were who were maybe kind of 10, 15 years away from being affordable all of a sudden were five, ten years away. And actually kind of the average time to affordability came came down significantly. And all of a sudden we had we had a lot more schemes who were who were able to afford buyout now, whereas in previously they thought it might still be five to ten years away.
0: As mentioned, it's it's a very busy market. So i guess the question is why is it so important um the scheme is fully prepared before approaching um insurers for a quote. amrit would you would you like to tell us from like the client side what you kind of think um preparation looks like here and why it's important
2: yeah absolutely um i guess when we were first coming up with the best practice guide that was pre covid sort of um march 2020 um and and since then as gavin says the funding positions really improved so We were worried at that time that there was a lot of quotes coming. People were having to be selective to some extent about what they quoted on. I think if anything, that's just accelerated really, really quickly. Uh, We act for every insurer in this market and there's not a single insurer who's not busy (laughs) or every time you speak to them, it's probably the first thing that they'll say. Um, And nobody wants to turn down quotes and the dreaded triage process that the um, insurers do to sort of decide what they want to focus on. So that um, resource element is you know, already uh, was probably stretched and is particularly so now. Um, So I think it's really important that people come and put their best foot forward and when they do get through and ensure it is engaged just to make sure they're doing their part so that that transaction is as smooth as possible. Um, We all know there's a sort of six week odd time period in which to get these transactions done. That's usually quite a busy period anyway. Um, And uh, with with things like negotiations and the assets and, you know, everything that goes into it. Um, So if that can be as smooth as possible without the surprises, then that's really key. um, and it just allows everyone to to do as much as they possibly can and help that more help the market out in terms of capacity.
0: Agree. Preparation definitely leads to smoother processes. Gavin, do you have anything to add from like an insurer perspective to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Amrit, Amrit covered most of it. I think that I think really it's kind of reinforcing that fact that our our pricing resource is is a really precious commodity, if, if you like, and, and we don't have much to spare. So. When we're, when we're receiving these cases, understanding that they're, they're well prepared and that we can have good confidence that the transaction is going to proceed um, as expected to so the timelines that, that, are, that are set out and are estimated makes a huge difference to us. So it's something that we place a lot of weight on is just understanding how well prepared schemes are as they approach the market.
0: That makes sense and and do we see that um preparation differs between like the smaller sub 100 deals and the larger you know billion pound deals we're seeing in the market these days
1: so i mean i, I think i think it's it, it it does it does vary by size and by complexity but but fundamentally it's important for all sizes of, of schemes that they that they they get this right i mean it's the that the larger schemes often take a lot more time and resource that, that that goes into them, and there's almost there's almost more that can go wrong if you like. So it makes that kind of preparation um, even more important at the at, at the large end. Yet at the at the smaller end, I guess you're kind of you're competing more for insurers' attention, and, and so therefore it's it's also really important from from those schemes' perspective that they've they kind of done the work and and can proceed proceed in a, a smoother way as possible.
0: I agree. I guess like preparation means like more traction in the in the market if you're, you know, there with all the points that are covered in the best practice guide. Um, I guess in terms of the best practice guide, who was this sort of prepared for? Like who's it primarily aimed at? Um, Amrit do you you want
2: to? Yeah absolutely it's it's a kind of trusty audience but I think a lot of it is aimed at the the consultants who are bringing the deals to the market as well Um, so they're sort of the conduit um, from that perspective and it's interesting so I I don't think there's anything in there that's revolutionary or groundbreaking in terms of you know what what people should be doing Um, but I think insurers do find it surprising how often people aren't following some of the basic uh, requirements so there's a lot more we'll, we'll talk about that later about where the guide might go and, and sort of what we'd want to add on to that but um, you know those basic building blocks I think if people could get that sort of piece right it would make um, their schemes much more attractive and insurers lives a lot easier as well. Okay and
0: and I guess um, it was like prepared by eight insurers along with DLA Piper is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what we found was that when we're speaking to our clients, we tend to hear the same messages. So um, even on a particular transaction, there might be the same frustration with the same data set and things like that. And obviously, um, it's I think it falls on individual insurers then to uh, vent the the sort of frustration or you know raise their concerns. Uh, And I think what we were finding was that there'd been a number of years of the insurers doing that. Um, and i think it was sometimes dismissed as oh that's that one insurer's problem and it's you know the other one didn't feel the same way and it was really clear to us that everyone felt the exact same way it's just that quite obviously they don't talk to each other because it's you know a competitive environment um and there was a number of conferences where people stand up and they go this must be done better and never with a solution or you would have a particular solution but it was just provided by one consultant for their clients so it didn't help anything across the market um, so i think just realizing that we had those good relationships with all the insurers we were hearing the same things and it's not really a legal document but from our perspective the more deals our clients can do that the better that is um, so that's just bringing everyone together and i think the key was finding the right individual from each of the insurers as so somebody who understood about you know the actual pricing of things the benefits, the process itself, um, but also with enough kind of internal clout to get buy-in to to the guide as well. That was really key. Um, And I think once, although it was all done virtually Mm. and in in lockdown, I think once people started talking, they just realised exactly what we did, which was that those frustrations and the barriers are all the same. Um, And I think when we had a launch event in September last year, that was really powerful because you had one person from each of the insurers standing up for what probably was the first time something like that had happened and just sort of with one voice saying, this is what works and and this is what doesn't work so well. Um, So I I think it's um, rather than, you know, individual grumbles, I think it's harder to ignore that single industry voice in that way.
0: Yeah, definitely was like, everyone's on the same page with this. So it's it's a good one to put together. And how do you see that trustees will benefit from following these principles um, of the best practice guide, I guess, um, I Amit, mean, I guess, from your side? Um, I think they'll
2: benefit by getting quotes at the moment, to be honest. Um, we we work on um, a number of transactions. So We've got something called the, the Bars Report. So we get involved in transactions just as they're coming to market. And, and quite honestly, there's been deals this year um, not not you know something new as of 2023 where we've been quite worried that there'll be schemes that don't get any quotes um who are of a decent size you know of of of, they really should have people competing over them. Um, so so I think the main benefit to the trustees is that you do all this preparation, there's a lot of anticipation about coming to market. Um, and, and I genuinely think the market has shifted, um, you know, coming out of everything that happened last year in terms of affordability. Um, I, I think there's a real risk that trustees come with their, you know, excitement and, and you just don't, get anybody that interested or they get one insurer interested um but they'll have to sort of adjust what they're doing so i i think it's um it's to make sure that they come and, and they make the most of it and that you know their plans go off without a hitch because it's even when I mean, we talk about preparation you know regardless of the guide there's big build-up, sort of 12, 18 months from a trustee side to come to market. Um They, do, they don't want to come and then just be left, you know, left standing there uh, without a transaction, you know, and, and there's usually timetables on their side in terms of, um, you know, employers and their accounts and getting things done by a certain time. So, so yeah, I think the main benefit for trustees is to make sure they're getting that engagement uh, and there no surprises from their side once they've come to market as well.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think there's just a I completely agree with all of that. A couple of points that I'd also add as well. There are there are parts parts of the best practice guide that also talk about um, how the fact that insurers don't like uncertainty and whenever there are gaps in the data, that won't always necessarily mean we don't quote. But what it does mean is we need to make assumptions. and And if we can't be sure about things, then. Those, those assumptions will tend to be more prudent. So there are actually a number of areas where following the best practice guide can lead to better pricing for clients as well. Um, and then the, the other aspect, to it, just kind of building a little bit on the, on the kind of making sure the process is as smooth as possible. This isn't just also thinking about the pre-transaction stage, you've also got to think about the post-transaction stage as well. And if clients have kind of invested lots of time thinking about the quality of their data, understanding where there might be gaps in the data, then that also really helps them for, for the post-transaction stage as well, and should ultimately mean that they have a, a, a quicker post-transaction stage, which also means you know, less less advisor fees, less time for the trustees to be spending on, on that transaction when they, when they think it's all done and dusted, it's actually not. There can often be another couple of years work there, but if you put in that more more work up front to make sure the data's in a good place, then that can reduce those timescales and get you ultimately where you want to be, which is kind of full, full buyout and, and wound up even quicker.
0: Yeah, but I agree. I guess it kind of limits the work that needs to be done during that data cleanse period and, mm. you know, can lead to, you know, premium going back and forth between uh, the scheme and the insurer Um, I think
2: it's really important as well that uh, some people do tend if you're not going to do it as Gavin says beforehand you are going to have to do it in the cleanse and insurers tend to have clauses that mean if you've moving that too much then you're going to have some sort of repricing and uncertainty element there so uh, I think it often it's, well, sometimes, maybe not most recently, but often an employer is writing a check of some sort. And I think, you know, having that uncertainty, knowing that you've got as much right up front and not trigger, triggering those later clauses because
0: you've done too much in your cleanse is also really important. Yeah, I agree, And I guess one of the things that the best practice guide touches on is um marital status data. I know it ref- references write-out versus trace. Is there like a preference here or... or- is it, I guess, up to the scheme ultimately?
1: Yeah, it's 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 actually <laughs> I kind of regretting these comments almost sort of making it because it's it's a really interesting area and not maybe not everyone thinks of kind of marital status write out exercises as an interesting area, but it's the kind of thing that gets me excited these days. So <laughs> I I don't think there's a, a clear yes or no answer. I think you will find that traditionally insurers have preferred the write out approach because they have. Um, more understanding of it, more, if you like, kind of more control around it. They can see what questions have been asked. They can see what the response rates have been. They understand where the data is coming from and, and any associated limitations with that. But I think the, kind of the the tracing exercises run by certain companies have really kind of gained traction in, in the last few years. And, and, and I think there are circumstances where um, insurers will use a tracing exercise and still will provide a, a, a good degree of credibility to that result. And, and ultimately, if you, get, if you get a better um, kind of response rate if you like from a tracing exercise, then that might be better than a write-out. So whilst I think kind of a, a write-out exercise and a well-carried out and a well-thought-through write-out exercise with good, good response rates, is the gold standard i think that tracing exercises absolutely have a have a place and are, are very commonly used in the industry as well yeah and i guess
0: the like one of the points is just having something recent there and like differentiating between like historic um data collected and and what's the right hour what's the trace as well is it's quite an important point right
1: yes absolutely and there's a lot of places within the best practice guide where we just refer to uh, this really important principle of just explaining the data and making sure that if you're giving us math status data or whatever else it is it's really important to give that context around the data so we understand it and, and know any limitations around it
0: thanks um and i guess another point that the best practice guide touches on is re- residual risk cover um we're seeing a lot more schemes come to market, um, you know, asking for this. Are you also seeing the same from your clients?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, yeah, residual risk keeps us all very busy. Um, it's, um, I think it used to be quite unusual. You maybe have one or two a year. Um, and I think we, we just a number of requests that have come up in the last three years, um has really increased i think it said you've got full scheme buyouts coming or you've got the very last tranche of a sort of multi-tranche approach um uh, and also people thinking now who maybe split their scheme up thinking about residual risks as you go rather than leaving it as an afterthought um so yeah huge amounts of demand for residual risks for sure
0: gavin do you have anything to add on residual risks
1: um I mean, I guess from a bit a best practice guide perspective I don't I don't think it necessarily changes a lot of the principles within the best practice guide it does perhaps make make it even more important that kind of preparation stage um because ultimately as a residual risk transaction you are asking the insurer to take a lot more um Uncertainty up, up front, and ultimately, the, the reinsurer is kind of facing new risks as a result of that. So, that means they're going to need to collect a lot more information, and and, and as, as Amrit said, you know, that, that leads to quite an, in, an intense process. So, it's even more important that, that data is collected up front and in advance. So, at the point when the insurer is ready to start their due diligence. The data's there and they can and they can get on with it straight away and, and make that as, as speedy a process as possible
2: i think we could write a whole module on residual <laughs> risks in the best practice i want one for the future um i, I think what's interesting is we, we you know we probably do about 10 or 15 due diligence projects residual aside a year um i I'm pretty consistently i think people underestimate just how involved it is um so you know we get a data room at the outset i pretty much none of them are fully populated there's always other things you know coming in um and also we run a lot of queries back and forth just trying to get to the bottom of stuff so we we have probably about six weeks to do a full due diligence on a scheme that might have been around from like the 1920s so we we ask a lot of questions of the people who hopefully know more than us um and, and I think it's it's really important when you're thinking about residual risks do, do you really need it and if you do, you know, if that's something you want, um, then it, it's almost a sort of work stream in its own, right. That needs a lot of focus and attention. Um, so making sure your data room, you know, a number of months out of coming to market is very well populated that you've asked everyone to look back. You've spoken to the employer as well, to see what they might have in their archives. Um, and then when you're running the actual due diligence process and you've got you know lawyers or you've got people looking at the admin DD, just making sure everyone's available I'm ready to start answering questions because the likelihood is they're questions about this thing that happened in 1982. What was that about? Um, so they're not easy questions. You do have to look back. Um, and it's those people who take that data room really seriously and you know, all of their advisors are already are and you know, to start looking and answering those questions. That's really key. Um, there's there's no law firm or, you know, admin DD provider who want to have a load of uncertainty and give that over to their client. They want to be able to cross as much stuff as, off as possible. Um But yeah, I think we do still find people underestimate just how intense the DD process is, especially if you're overlaying it with a normal transaction as well and everything that needs to happen in that same
0: six-week period. It's definitely sound like, sounds like a lot of work from both sort of trustee side as well as the insurer side. So definitely like probably start early on that one is the key message here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I guess residual risks was one point that I sort of picked up on in the best practice guide. Is there any other like points that you'd want to like highlight that you think uh, are important to to bring up? Yeah, so I think, I think the
1: one that really kind of jumps out for me, which might seem like quite quite a small point in the bigger scheme of things. But we, we we just talk about this general principle of having a very clear link between the the data and the the benefit specification. Um, and the re- the reason why I, I picked that out is because in a you know in a typical kind of six to eight week quotation process, you can often find that the first three to four weeks of that is taken up By a back and forth between the insurer and the consultant, making sure we understand the benefits and that everything, you know, everything that we've interpreted, we've interpreted it correctly. Um, And I think if if we could get to a place where those additional clarifications weren't weren't needed when if the if the um, if the benefit consultant and the administrator is able to kind of preempt the questions that they might expect. Expect and kind of pre-fill in the, the the query logs that we use to manage the process, then that could perhaps cut down a, a lot of that. And, and if we got that right, then maybe you could, you know, take a big chunk off of the time that quotation process takes.
0: Agree. Having just sort of that key sort of like this links to this in the data and the benefits bag definitely smoothens like the the process and like shortens the time, as you say. Um, Amrit is there anything you'd like um, to highlight
2: yeah I think it was probably more the event the launch event we had rather than sort of something specific in the guide but it I think what's interesting is that insurers are busy but but also the consultants are busy so it's it's interesting you know that that preparation piece and what some people might you know maybe people sort of package things up and <laughs> send it over and and don't do that extra work and sort of hope hope for the best um and it it's it's more about a mindset shift, I think, in the market that's needed as well. So if I think back, you know, five, six years ago, um, you know, there was maybe one large transaction a year. Um, it, it, it got a lot more traction. Um, you know, there's a number of insurers going after it. The consultants um, could pretty much ask for whatever they they wanted. Um, and the insurers would, you know, would jump that high. Um, and uh, it's became kind of came clear from some of those conversations at the launch event that the market has shifted. Um, and the sort of mentality of the whole market needs to shift as a result. Um, one of the the interesting things was, um, I think an independent trustee asked, sort of what, if I was choosing a consultant, what should I focus on? Um, and pretty university it was, it was relationships. That was the key that came out. Um, and I think, um, Kind of old school processes that are sort of very, you know, three three rounds, four rounds, um, lots of extra asks each time, um, lots of asks that may not be important or might fall away. Um, That that mentality really has to shift, and those consultants who do work differently, who think about what's really important, what they can do to help the insurer, and actually also have positive working relationships with the insurers are the ones who tend to get much smoother transactions people enjoy working with them and if there is a problem you'll know it's you know come out the blue it's not for lack of trying and and also insurers tend to want to try and help you know in those situations it's just human nature really um so i think it's that um People are busy at every sort of angle of this market, you know, including the lawyers and and the consultants and the independent trustees. Um, and part of it is, you know, can we work a little bit differently and more collaboratively, cr- collaboratively, just to help each other out um, as well? That was the the really big bit that came
0: out of that launch
2: event. Um, just a shift needed in in kind of approach.
0: I think in in general, it sounds like the the guide's been positively received by the market. Um, do you have any more to sort of say around that?
2: Um, I think it has been received positively. I think there's a lot of content in there. So um, I think there's more work to be done. I think Gavin agrees as well, um, just to make sure everyone's aware of that. And and I think insurers often feel, you know, they the things are brought to market through the consultants. And I think it's raising awareness with the trustees as well, so that they can also be part of sort of making sure things are coming to market in the right way and, and and keeping everyone on track um but yeah very very positive reception but i think there's a lot lot more that's still to be done
1: yeah i i agree i think yeah people are very supportive of the concept around the best practice guide and, and what it's what it's trying to to achieve but i think people also recognize that you know, things aren't just going to happen overnight and, and the industry is, is facing its own its own challenges in terms of the human resource I mean we, we talked a lot about the human resource from a pricing perspective on the insurer side but similarly you know the benefit consultants, the legal advisors, the administrators are all facing those those same challenges. so you know we, we recognize that not not every part of the best practice guide is going to be able to be implemented initially but i think at least if there can be that common understanding of 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 what what insurers are are looking for then that helps the consultants the administrators the lawyers kind of work together towards that towards that goal and, and get it in get the um get the project in in the best shape they can
0: and you mentioned that there's quite a lot of work still here to be done is there any examples of what you kind of see next here for the best practice guide or for future you know getting others involved here
2: Absolutely. So I think we, there was quite a lot of content that didn't quite make it into the first version of the guide. Um, a lot was spent on the kind of data side of things, but each one of those areas is probably a module in its own right. So we, we would like to do like a deep dive into marital data, residual risks. And there's a whole piece, it's very interesting that after the guide, the reinsurers were very keen to say that they seem to have similar frustrations with the market and think that there's ways in which things could work more smoothly. So, and we're working on having a sort of reinsurer's perspective on it all. Um, I think often consultants can be a bit bamboozled as to these random reinsurer asks that come quite last minute. Uh, and uh, I, I think, there's also a piece of just sort of understanding where the reinsurers are coming from and sort of bringing them, they always sit behind the insurer, but sort of bringing their voice a little bit more to the table as well, I think would be really helpful.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that would be really powerful and kind of get, getting the reinsurer input at an earlier stage, I think would, would make a big difference. I think also it's just, it's also just around kind of, Embedding the practice into working processes as well. You know, I, ideally, I'd like it to always become part of the vocabulary of when someone submits an RFQ to an insurer. That it comes with a comment of, you know, this has complied with the best practice guide, and it it almost becomes that that quality mark that we can we can look out for and and we can um, we can reference and and also you know, Amrit was saying earlier on about the fact that this is all around insurers speaking speaking with one voice. I think it's then also, you know, it's about insurers having the confidence to say and, and just give that feedback in a, in a constructive and in a positive way, but where we have had a case that doesn't comply with, with some of the key principles of the best practice guide, just pointing that out to the, to the EBC and having a conversation to try and understand why that's the case. And if, and if a few insurers are doing that, then then people will will listen to it, and I think it will make a make
0: a difference in the long run. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, I, I definitely think like you know insurers are just a call away and keen to get involved right at the start, even before the mark like the schemes come to market. Um, so coming back to sort of present, if a trustee was picking up the best practice guide tomorrow, um, but they needed sort of some aid on the way and and like wanted some more help around it, who's their first point of contact? I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I would say that your, your first point of contact should should be with, with your advisors. I mean the, the advisors that support this market are fantastic. They 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 know the market inside out. Many of them have been working at it um, for or in the market for many, many years now. So definitely have that conversation with your advisor, ask for their, their honest opinion on 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 how they're um, taking account of things like the best practice guide to make sure that the um the clients are getting the most the most traction that they they can. Having said that as well though, you know, insurers are all, always happy to have conversations with 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 prospective clients and, and that's something that we'll always make time for, even in, even in very busy markets. We always want to be having that early conversation with, with clients and making sure we're we're supporting them in the best way that we can as well so so yeah if, if, if it was part of that conversation with your advisor you'd like some direct contact with the insurers that then just just ask and i'm sure more
0: often than not that will be possible mm-hmm. I agree um i guess uh thank you both for being here and uh it was interesting talking about the best practice guide are there any sort of ends uh like closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners do you want to go yeah go absolutely
2: um so i'll I think the main thing is that we've done 11% of what's yet to come in this market. Um, So all all those kind of young people getting into de-risking and being unsure whether there's enough work, there's plenty of work. I think we can all all attest to that. So um, I I think the kind of main thing is it is very busy um, and it will continue to do so. I think we're only starting to see... The levels of business that we will over the the coming years um and it's just really important that um everyone and that you know that's that's not one one single um contributor or part of this market but everyone just thinks about how we can do things differently and better and um i think as long as we're always on the front foot with that um and and sort of working together to find a way through um we should be able to get there um but but the sort of the, the past practices don't necessarily uh, work in in twenty twenty three as as well as they did maybe a decade ago, and I think it will be those who are nimble and able to stay on the front foot. I think who will make the most of the market in the coming years.
1: Yeah, and 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 for me, I mean, I guess yeah. It's, I mean, it's just such an exciting time for the market. Such an exciting market to be to be part of. But I, I think what what continues to set our market out from from apart i should say from others is the collaborative na- nature of it is that you know when you go to these industry-wide conferences there's so much commonality of, of purpose and so many people not losing sight that ultimately all of this is around trying to secure pensioners long-term financial s- future and and just not losing sight of that of that ultimate goal i think really helps with the collaboration of the of the industry so i think I think we're in 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 strong strong shape to deal with the challenges that we've, we've got ahead of us
0: all right thank you thank you Amrit, and thank you gavin for being with us today the best practice guide is linked in our description below don't forget to like subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and i'll catch you in the next episode thanks everyone